over that. And sometimes even when you look at others that are struggling, stumbling around in the dark, it helps to remind you what the Lord has done for you. And uh, much to thank him for. Uh, pray for Anne and rescheduling of her recital that was supposed to happen yesterday and a accompanist couldn't participate and so uh, things have been interrupted in in her life and schedule um, we're looking forward to having her parents here tonight and uh, her dad is on the pastoral staff at grace baptist in columbia and i know one of his roles is uh, the leadership of their music ministry so I haven't heard whether he's going to sing a solo or get his wife to sing a duet, but they're going to do something tonight, so we're looking forward to having them. And I do want to just mention, in light of Valentine's Day, uh, we're going to look at a text that helps us um, think about the love of God and uh, God's love being worked out in our lives um, to others and uh, just uh, what the scripture does to elevate biblical love. So we're going to be looking at that this evening uh, in light of Valentine's Day. I do want to have you turn this morning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 in our Bibles. Most of you know that on Friday our Daniel had surgery to repair a torn ACL. And over the past couple of weeks I've been in and out of the hospital and medical clinics with him and trying to help him keep functioning with, with college life and academics. And uh, all of that has been a bit of a flashback for me. Um, this is Daniel's second semester of his junior year. And it was at Christmas break of my junior year that the doctors first diagnosed uh, the rare form of lymphoma that was in my lungs. Um, we were told right away that the average lifespan was two to three years. And over the course of uh, the next uh, year, I had aggressive chemotherapy. Um, after eight months, was declared in remission. But then uh, three months later, while back here as a dorm student at Bob Jones, uh, the cancer had returned in my lungs and had spread to my liver. And the concern was much more intense. Um, the surgery and procedures and treatment that followed and trips back and forth to Washington, D.C. every three weeks for a while. Um, in some ways, all of that had seemed a very distant memory. And I start to lose some of the detail of it. But uh, as I've been uh, with Daniel these past couple weeks, uh, it just has reminded me of how much time has just flown by. And, and in some sense, it was almost like, wasn't that yesterday or last year? Um, but I think back, and, and I think in my case, that, that was a year and a half before Karen and I were married. Um, it was ten and a half years before we met Daniel. And, and now he's having surgery at the same stage in, in college life, same town where some of my story took place. And, um, and some of that just, it doesn't seem like it could be true. Uh, it's like the blink of an eye, and, and uh, you don't have to put, though, very many 24-hour um, periods together before the reality is that hardly anyone on earth will be mindful of the fact that I even lived or will remember anything specific about my life. And if you don't think that's true, 
Um, think, think for just a minute, how many of you know the first and last name of your great-grandmother, either of them? I don't. <laughs> if you do, I would, you know, think back to one more generation uh, and your great-great-grandmothers. And, and maybe if we had hands raised, there'd be five or ten. Maybe it's more than I think. But, but I'd be surprised if very many of us know the names of our great-grandparents, and they only died 50 to 60 years ago. I, I presume that their lives were very important to dozens of people. Some of them, maybe hundreds, maybe, maybe some of them were known by thousands. But the fact is, they are pretty well forgotten now. Isaac Watts' hymn says, O God, our, uh, o God, our help in ages past, is the hymn. But in that hymn, he says, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly, forgotten, as a dream dies at the opening day. You know what that's like, right? You had a dream. It was so vivid. And you were ready to tell somebody, and you get halfway through the day, and you can't remember exactly what that dream was. What was that dream that woke me up in the night? And he's like, that's the way it is. We are very occupied with what is here and now. And there's a sense in which we should be, if we're mindful that, that, that we, we're stewards of this one earthly life that God has given to us. But if we approach this life with, with reasonable sobriety to make sure it's productive and beneficial and, and so on, but we stop there and we don't reckon with the brevity of this life to the point that we are prepared for eternity, if we don't reckon on the fact that what is your life, it's even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away if we don't reckon on the fact that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the the judgment if we just focus on the productivity of this week and we don't prepare for eternity we have not properly estimated the words of the lord in his conclusion to his sermon on the mount the entirety, you remember, of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 record one continuous sermon that Jesus preached about his own heavenly kingdom. And his conclusion begins right here in chapter 7 and verse 13, and it continues through the end of this chapter, and it's one of the most sober passages to be found in the Bible. Because all the way back in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said there are two distinct pathways that lead to two different eternal destinations. In fact, in verse 13, as you can see, it is many that are on the path to eternal destruction. In contrast to that, in verse 14, there are few that find the path that leads to life. And one reason why that is the case is because in verse 15, the influence of false prophets have over time just given people assurances that run completely contrary to Jesus' teaching. Many false prophets teach that it's, you know, nearly everyone is basically good at heart, 
And even though we might be taking different approaches, we're all conscious of the same basic creator. And, and, and pretty well, you know, anyone receive, that, that has anything good to them is going to end up in heaven. In 2006, uh, Warren Buffett was known as either the wealthiest or the second wealthiest in the world. It was right during a stretch where it was back and forth with him and Bill Gates. But he announced that he was going to be giving away most of his multi-billion dollar wealth by that time. He had put a figure on of 85%. He was going to be giving uh, away 85% of his wealth to charity. He grew up Presbyterian, but he has said on multiple occasions that he is agnostic. I'm not sure how serious his comment about heaven was. But when he stated his motive for giving away his wealth to charity, he said, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. And I hope that before he dies, he hears a response to a faithful gospel message. If he doesn't, he will join the ranks of those that are very mistaken about their eternal destiny. And the window that Jesus opens in verses 21 to 24, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. It endured, it lasted, it remained. What are the marks of someone that can have confidence of an enduring citizenship in Christ's kingdom? There's two here, they're really straightforward. In verse 24, the first one is the matter of hearing the words of Jesus. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. And as we move forward, we're going to see that isn't the primary evidence that he's actually driving home. But it is worth our pausing to note it. There is no true citizen of Jesus' kingdom that is not marked, first of all, by attention to Jesus' words. I, I know that you know there are many people who consider themselves Christian, but they seldom, if ever, give serious consideration to the Bible. They, they claim to be Christian, but they don't open their Bible to read them. They rarely attend services where the focus is the attention of the words themselves. If they do show up in a place like this, they end up bored and fidgety and completely lacking of patience and appetite to give attention to the very words of Jesus in the Scripture. I had an opportunity to speak to a lady, I won't even mention her denominational background, but it's under the umbrella of, of Protestant Christianity, and I asked her if she had assurance of, since we're given an eternal life, she said, I think I've got a pretty good chance. And I said, can I show you what the Bible says? Because 1 John 5, 13 says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. And I didn't get it all out. She stopped me. She said, I already told you my denomination. You know we don't know our Bibles. Don't go using it against me. <laughs> but that lady would tell you she's a Christian. 
but she readily admits she doesn't know her Bible. There, there is nothing more important you could give your attention to. According to Jesus, there's nothing more important you could give your attention to than his very words. And yet, many a Bible in a Christian home has not been opened. And at best, people show up for whatever reasons and put their time in and want to quickly move back out to what they think of as real life. I got to get back out there. That's life. It's so much the case that you know that often preachers themselves actually give apologies if they end up trying to captivate someone's attention for more than 15 to 20 minutes, even in a so-called worship service. But the mark of somebody that has an enduring citizenship in Christ's kingdom is that they, first of all, hear the words of Jesus. However, that mark alone, according to Jesus, is insufficient. Notice in verse 24, he not only points to hearing his sayings, but doing them. And we know that that's the driving burden, because look at verse 26. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And as you read those companion verses, the only variable okay, that impacts a vastly different outcome consists in one three-letter word in our English. In verse 24, the wise man hears the sayings and what? And does them. And in verse 26, the foolish man hears the sayings and doeth them not. And that three-letter word not is the only difference. I'm just saying, you, if, you, if you're going to let Jesus be the arbitrator of it, okay, in this text, there's one three-letter word that makes the difference. And it's the word not. Do you hear and do, or do you hear and not do the words of Jesus? Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this text, spent several minutes um, underscoring the, the similarities between the two builders, right? Because they're building a house. And he preached this sermon at Westminster Chapel in London in the late 1940s, 1950s, somewhere in there. It was transcribed via shorthand notes. And in comparing the, the builders, he remarked they both desired to build a house. It seems build the same type of house in the same general vicinity. And then he went on to make some application and and I decided this morning that instead of just trying to explain some of that, I was going to read the section of the sermon to you, and I'm going to read a longer section of Lloyd-Jones' own sermon. And I, and I just want to say that part of the reason I'm doing that is because we've been, this is the third week, we've been in a very sober passage. Okay? And, and I really, just even pastorally, I'm not afraid of the truth at all. And I know God would use it, but just pastorally, I don't want even our church to feel like, Boy, pastor's going at it again. He must not feel like he got everybody shaken up enough last week. So he's coming at us again. And actually what I want to do is just step back and say, you know, here's a pastor 
from the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 50s, just preaching to his own congregation. And I want us just to be able to hear that. And what he says is the first thing we have to say about the Christian and the pseudo-Christian is that they have certain points in common. As there were similarities between two builders and two houses, there are similarities between these two people. The first is that you tend to find them in the same place. The, the true Christian and the false counterpart are generally to be found in the same sphere. You generally find them both in the church as members together. They sit and listen to precisely the same gospel and both seem to like doing so. They are to all appearance in exactly the same position, having the same general outlook, interested in the same activities. The man who is deluded by the counterfeit is not outside the church. He's inside it. He likes being connected with the church. He may be an active member of it. These two men on the surface are as like each other as were the two builders and their houses in the picture. But they're not only in the same place. The two men appear to have the same general desires. The spiritual application, in the spiritual application, the sense of difficulty lies in the fact that the nominal Christian has the same general desires as the true Christian. What are they? He desires forgiveness and wants to believe his sins are forgiven. He wants peace. He went to a meeting in the first place because life had made him restless. He was unhappy and could not find satisfaction. So he went to the meeting and began to listen. It's a great mistake to think that the only person who desires peace within and the quiet heart is the true Christian. The world today is hungering and thirsting for this peace and is searching for it. Many people come into the sphere of Christianity because they desire it. As others turn to various cults. The same thing is true also of desire for comfort and consolation. Life is hard and difficult. We all tend to be weary and sad. So the world is longing for comfort. The result is that many people who come to church, just as it were, to be, to be drugged. They sit in the service. They do not even listen to what is said. They say that there's something about the atmosphere of the building which is soothing. They're longing for comfort and consolation. The true and false share that in common. The same applies in matters of guidance and the desire to find a way out of trouble and difficulties. It's not only the true Christian that's interested in guidance. There are unbelievers who have made great mistakes in life and who are unhappy as a result. They say, I always seem to do the wrong thing. I try to work things out, but my decisions are always wrong. Then suddenly they hear someone speaking about guidance who says that if you do what he tells you, things can never go wrong. They jump at the teaching eagerly. We must not blame them. It's very understandable. We all know this longing for guidance, for infallible guidance, so that we cease from making mistakes and always do the right thing and make the right decision. The false press professor desires that as much as the true Christian. In exactly the same way, he may have a desire to live a good life. You need not be a Christian in order to live a better life. There are highly moral, ethical men outside the realm of Christianity who are very concerned to live a better life. 
That's why they read philosophy and study ethical systems. They want to live a good and moral life. Emerson's teaching is still popular. We cannot hope to discriminate between these two men by these tests alone. Dare we go further and say that the false professor may be very interested in and desirous of spiritual power. Read again the account in Acts 8 of Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. That man saw Philip working miracles and was impressed. He had been doing that kind of thing too, but not with the ease and power, and he joined himself to the Christians. Then when he saw Peter and John, by laying their hands on people, gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, Simon became covetous and offered them money for the possession of that power. He coveted it, and his spiritual descendants in these days may likewise covet and desire spiritual power. Finally, the false professor also desires to get to heaven. He's a man who believes in heaven and hell and does not want to go to perdition. He very definitely desires to go to heaven. Have you not known such people? Many can be found outside the church altogether. They certainly want to go to heaven. They say that they've always believed in God. If that is true of the man outside, how much more is it true of the nominal Christian who's inside? The realm and sphere of Christian interests. So we find these strange similarities between the two persons. They seem to believe the same things and desire the same things. They even seem to have the same things. That's the most alarming thought of all. The people who had cast out devils and done many wonderful works in the name of Christ were quite sure of their salvation. There's no vestige of doubt about it. They believed they had been forgiven. They seemed to be at peace and enjoying the comforts of religion. Yet he said unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Do you realize that it is possible to have a false sense of forgiveness? Do you realize it is possible to have a false sense of peace within you? You say, I've not worried about my sins for years. I can believe that if you are only a nominal Christian. The fact that you've not thought about these things for years is an indication in itself that there is something wrong about your sense of security and peace. The man who never knows what it is to have certain fears about himself, fears which drive him to Christ, is in a highly dangerous condition. You can have false peace false comfort, and false guidance, the devil can give you remarkable guidance. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones went on for several more minutes, pointing out the similarities between false professors and true citizens before he came to the Lord's mark of one vital difference. And brethren, that vital difference, again, as we've already seen, is the actual response of the life to the words of the Scripture. Do you hear and do? Or do you hear and do not? You remember what James said. James said, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And the rest of that is what? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving. Deceiving who? 
That's the tragedy. The tragedy is not just everybody else around me thought I was okay. But I've actually deceived myself by being around all of the the trappings of the Christian religion. But the word not changing me and my life not being ordered in keeping with the word. And again, I'm pausing at this point to underscore there is a difference between the entrance into Jesus' kingdom and the evidence that a man is a true citizen. The entrance into into Jesus' kingdom is by being born again through faith in the person and work of Christ on the cross as the only payment to God for my sin. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, you know Jesus told a man by the name of Nicodemus, that unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And later, in that same chapter, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This response of believing in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and, and, and this committing yourself completely to him in faith, that's the entrance into that kingdom. But when a man embraces Jesus with a true saving faith, it does change him experientially. And there's evidence. And one primary evidence that he's become a true citizen of Christ's kingdom is that he's being transformed by the very words of the scripture. And and when you're talking about a true citizen of Christ's kingdom, all right, how they think, what they think about and how they think, and, and the emotions they feel, and the relationships they form, and, and how they conduct themselves in those relationships, and the priorities for the day, the week, the priorities for my life, even down to things like what they do with their finances, and what they watch, and what they listen to. All of those, if they are a true citizen of Christ's kingdom, all of those are not only being informed by the scripture, they're being directed by the scripture. They're not frustrated when their thinking and resulting actions of life are challenged by what the Bible actually says. They want to know what it says for the sake of doing it because they regard those words as the very words of Christ, their Lord and Savior. A number of years ago, and Mr. Swaffer could vouch for this, when some of the social media platforms were starting to proliferate, and a graduate of our previous school was identifying things that were her favorites. You know, as you can put your favorite music, your favorite shows, your favorite this and that. And about favorite music, she said, her favorite music is, is anything that tells you, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting the phrase wrong. Her favorite music was, first of all, and identified the band, and then said, and anything that tells you how awesome God is. I was looking over Mr. Swaffer's shoulder. I said, click on that. He clicked on it. We looked at the band, and the opening description of the band said, that the lead singer is the greatest sex symbol of the day. 
The girl graduated from a Christian school. She was at that time a student in a Christian college, and she thought you could put sex symbol and something that tells you how awesome God is in the same sentence and say, I'm a fan of it. She is incredibly, sadly mistaken. And if God has not interrupted the course of her life, may very well be on the broad path that leads to destruction to this day. The people who are true citizens of Christ's kingdom, everything about the way they think and they feel and their priorities and all of that, what they watch, what they listen to, they don't dismiss them on Monday morning or Friday night or Saturday or in the car or in the bedroom. But those words continue to mean everything and continue to guide. In a previous church, we were in a lady stood up in a testimony time and she told the church family that she had been wrestling for some time with assurance of her salvation. Even though her husband was in seminary preparing for ministry, she was having significant doubts about whether or not she was born again. And in time, she came to the conclusion that she did not have vital signs, as we looked at last Sunday evening in 1 John. She didn't have the signs that she was a true believer, and she just cried out to the Lord to save her and to give her new life. And over the next little bit, as again, she gave the testimony, she wondered if that experience was, was truly as transformative as she might expect it to be. I mean, because she, she's thinking, I'm basically doing the same things now that I was doing before. I've been in church like this all my life. I'm married to, you know, a guy in seminary, and, and the, the structure of life did not remarkably change. And she's just wondering about all of that. And she encountered a verse, and you don't need to turn there this morning, but it helped provide some, some clarity for her. It's 1 John 5 and verse 3, which says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And she testified that as she thought about that text, <clears throat> there was a very definite experiential change that took place in her life. Keeping the commandments of God was a concept that she knew. And because of a variety of matters, she pretty well had kept the commandments of God. She had lived, if I can say it this way, she had lived under God's rules. But, as she reflected on it, it really had been a pretty heavy burden in her life. To have to live under God's rules. Live under mom and dad's rules. And live under the church's rules. And live under the expectations of all those rules. That she pretty well saw in the Bible. And figured I gotta do it. Because this is what Christians do. But it was a heavy burden to live under those rules. And she came to the place of testifying. That what she had hardly noticed at first was a transformation had taken place in her life where the words of our Lord and hearing them for the sake of believing them and living them 
were no longer grievous, but it was actually had become the joy and delight of her life to hear those words and believe them and do them because she saw them as the words of her Lord that she just was so glad to know and respond to. Now, brethren, that is the mark of a life that is truly grounded on the rock of a personal relationship with the king of the kingdom of heaven. They hear those words and they do them. And they don't do them because I just have to buckle under or else. They do them because those are the words of their Lord and Savior. And it's the delight of their life to know them and do them. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I really want to, I, I do want to be careful, even right now, because we know what it is to get tired, and I, I mean even just physically tired. We can get worn out. We can get sick. We can have things going on inside of our body that, that can make us at certain times uh, in the morning, devotional time, whenever it is, or sending a service like this, that can make it hard for us and in, at some given time. Right. We, can have some, we can have some injuries spiritually that can bring us to certain crossroads. I'm trying to communicate that this is not an unbroken succession of nonstop joy and delighting. So that somebody that's here this morning and says, I'm so worn out, I must not be saved. I, I really would be sad to have you be under that weight Yet at the same time, brethren, I do want to encourage you to come back to what did Jesus say about this? What was that lady testifying to in keeping with the scripture? Do you want to hear these words? Do you want to spend time with your Lord in his word? Because those words you see are your life. The, the Lord said to the 12 after thousands had walked away. He said, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have nowhere to go. We're clinging to those words with everything. If you can say that this morning, that's, that's a work of God. That's a work of the grace of God. It's a vital sign in your life. It's a mark of something enduring. And you ought to thank him for it. And if you're here this morning and you say, I just don't know that reality, then you need to do what that seminary wife did, that Christian girl that grew up in a Christian home, a member of a Christian church, married to a 
seminary student, you need to do what she did. You need to say, I don't have the vital signs. God, save me. Make your word and your son a relationship with you real. Just cry out to him to save you today.